I knew I wanted to write some version of my story, a kind of emotional autobiography, and it was helping me. It was helping me process what I had lived, what I had been through, and it was surprising you know, to me what was coming out, but it was fabulous to see the possibilities that emerged. Welcome to the Converge Lecture Series podcast, a co-production of 91.5 KRCC and Converge Lecture Series. I'm Jake Brownell. Today on the show, we're joined by Edwige Dantica. Dantica is the acclaimed author of many books of fiction and nonfiction, including Breath, Eyes, Memory, The Dewbreaker, and Brother, I'm Dying. She's also a prolific writer of short stories, essays, children's books, and more. Born in Haiti, she immigrated to the United States when she was 12 years old, and much of her work explores themes of migration and displacement, political upheaval, and the complex relationships of family and community. In the more than two decades since she published her first novel, she's received a MacArthur Fellowship, been twice nominated for the National Book Award, and won numerous other awards for her work. Dantica was invited to speak in Colorado Springs as part of Converge Lecture Series, which brings writers and poets to the city to share their reflections on art, life, and the topic of moral beauty. I spoke with her in advance of that talk. Edwige Dantica, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, I wanted to begin this conversation by going back to to the beginning for you as a writer and asking you where your writing journey started and, and why you began to write in the first place. Well, I started becoming interested in writing by really listening to stories. I uh, grew up in a household of full of storytellers, uh, people, you know, like my, even my uncle, who I grew up with in Haiti. My parents left Haiti when I was uh, young and left me with my uncle, who was a minister. So he told stories in his own way uh, via the church pulpit. And then we also had a storytelling tradition in in Haiti, certainly, but also in our family, where there were common blackouts. We know the lights would go out, and we'd tell stories, and we'd go in the summer to the countryside, and you know, at dusk, people would would tell stories. So you know, neighborhood children would gather, and it was the time that the only time that I remember really were children and adults seemed to be on an equal footing. So I grew up listening to stories, and um, but I was shy, and I didn't think I would be this kind of person who could stand in front of people and tell stories. And I was given my first book by my uncle when I was four, and it was um, Madeleine in a house in Paris <laughs> that was covered with vines in French. And I just and I realized, oh, that's a way of telling stories too, where you don't have to stand in front of people, where. And I just remember thinking, whatever that is, with that way of telling the story, I want to do that. I didn't really know what it meant to be a writer. I didn't know sort of the daily ness of it, you know. But I knew that at that point that I wanted to tell stories, but I wanted to put words on the page because I didn't think I had the sort of the charisma to to to, to tell and retell the same story and make it seem like new which is what um, oral storytellers do so beautifully. 
your uncle, how much did his his speaking style and kind of that charismatic way of telling stories that is so common in the church influence you and, you know, even as a writer sort of influence the way that you thought about storytelling? You know, this hadn't occurred to me until very recently when I was talking to a friend. I have two young daughters, and, and when one has uh, young children, you often you're trying to infuse uh, all these things into them. And um, one of them is reluctant to read. And I was telling my friend, and she's like, well, you know, what made you want to read? It's not like the people were reading around me. And she said, well, you were listening to people read the Bible like every service, every Sunday. That was being read too. And I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about that. And um, and also the sort of the persuasive style that, that any minister, even sort of the most um, even keeled and quiet one, has to have to convince a congregation all the time about faith and all of that. I, I hadn't given that much credit, even though I had written the whole uh, book in part about my uncle and his life and, and his the, the way he tragically died. But I hadn't I had not really lingered on the influence of that, of hearing someone, um, and in my uncle's case, speaking with his own voice, uh, preaching with his own voice, and then later preaching with a voice box, which was even more dramatic, you know, to try to get some emotion into that um, that through a voice box. And we should say he he had uh, throat cancer, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had he had throat cancer in his 50s and had to have a surgery to remove his larynx, but then he continue to preach uh, with a voice box after that. And and I want to kind of go back to that story, to your uncle and to your family. Your parents left Haiti where, where you were born and left you with your aunt and uncle when you were quite young. Can you tell me just a little bit the synopsis of, of your early life there and of, of that experience? My father, when I was two, um, used to work as a shoe salesman and, and a tailor. He had these two jobs. Being a tailor was something he did on his own, and then he worked in the shoe shop during the day. And this was during the uh, Duvalier dictatorship in, in Haiti. And at some point, the Tonton Makuts, the, the men who, who were sort of the guns of the dictatorship, would come to the store. And because of their power, you know, these men could come in the store and have every, anything they want. If they liked a pair of very expensive shoes, they, they could just get it and walk out. And my dad and his boss had this trick where it's like, well, they bought, like the boss bought some really cheap shoes. And and my dad's job was in part to convince these guys to take those shoes instead of the expensive shoes. And my dad, in addition to, you know, living in the dictatorship and also always trying to make ends meet, had the stress of like worrying that one day one of these guys would get mad and shoot him. So he decided to apply for a visa. He moved to the U.S. where only I had one uncle on my mother's side was living. So he was the first in, in our family on that side to move to Brooklyn. And and then two years later, my mom joined him. And went, and so I was four by then, and I stayed with uh, my aunt and uncle. And then that time, they were able to visit one time um, when I was seven. They had two U.S.-born children, and they came back to rectify their status. So that's when they were able to have their green cards. And once they had their green cards, they were able to apply for me and my brother, and we joined them in Brooklyn, New York, in 1981 when I was 12 years old. And during that time, were your parents technically undocumented, or they had overstayed a visa? Well, they overstayed a visa, which then um, rendered them undocumented. Both of them initially 
worked in factories. They both worked in handbag factories. And my dad um, had a story that he often told that were he worked two jobs. One was in this factory, and the other one was in a car wash. And he would always describe very vividly what it was like to work in the car wash in the winter. And one of those jobs was for him to afford life here, you know, like food and rent and and all his needs here. And another job was for our lives in Haiti, for sp- sending money back there. And one of the reasons that he wanted my mom to join was that they could work together and sort of accelerate this process of having the ability to send for me and my brother. So, um, yes, they were undocumented. At some point, my mom was arrested in an immigration raid in her factory and was detained uh, for about three days while she was pregnant with one of my brothers. And so they had a an experience that, that will ring very familiar to a lot of people who um, who were in you know in similar circumstances at that time and and that in the time that we are in right now too what was that like for you growing up to to sort of know that your parents were at a distance trying to support you and trying to sort of reunify the family eventually but but knowing that it it couldn't really happen yet i really i didn't know all the details of what was happening with them i just knew that I, like a lot of other children, had parents who were living abroad. It was not an uncommon thing for a child to have a parent in the you know, Dominican Republic and Canada and France and the United States and who were working, and, and you were always told that they would come for you. And sometimes you were threatened with, like, you better behave, or when you get to New York, in our case, your your dad is going to fix you. So I was actually growing up, I was terrified of my dad uh, because I didn't really... He left when I was two, so I didn't really remember much about him. And then I was always being told that he was going to make me a good little girl when I when we were finally <laughs> reunited. So it wasn't. I was really not looking forward to this reunion. Um, but we had this was our routine on Sunday every Sunday afternoon. We would go to this the phone company, and they had these booths where you sat there, and the person would call you in the booth from the United States, and you had your conversation. And then in between, they would send us cassettes. So we stayed in touch. And, and actually, one of the m- most moving memories is of reading some letters that my my dad would write. They were a little bit formulaic, but they sometimes, you know, they would share news through the letters, through the cassettes. And then we had those phone calls. So we always felt that they were present. And, and both my brother and I also always felt like we had that ahead of us, that really our life was elsewhere and that eventually we were going to join them in, in, in the United States, which we didn't know that much about. It's not like now. We didn't really have much information except that our parents were there and that it was cold in New in Brooklyn, New York, where they were living. When you finally did make the trip to the United States and, and moved to New York City, what was it like to make that adjustment to sort of suddenly be in the place where you'd always known you would eventually be and, and to sort of have to make a life? It was it was a huge, huge shift. It was just um, massive. Getting used to our parents, it was a, a whole process of getting reacquainted and, and getting to know our brothers who, when they came to Haiti with my parents when I was seven, they were babies, so they didn't really remember us. And I don't think that there was a sit down where it's like you have siblings coming and because my brothers, my younger brothers thought we were adopted, that, that my parents had suddenly adopted these big kids from Haiti. So 
you know, just everybody was just thrown into the situation. We all had to get used to it, which again is not unusual for a lot of families in this type of situation. But eventually, you know, um, we sort of fell into life in New York City. At some point, there was a kind of terrible shock in going to school because in 1981, when we arrived, people were just starting to talk about AIDS. And Haitians were the only group that were put in the sort of the high-risk listing for nationality. And so that meant a lot of people in the church where my parents attended lost their jobs. A lot of, you know, because they worked in the service industry, they worked in kitchens, they worked in hotels, they worked in hospitals, and people didn't know much about um, AIDS back then. So there was that. And then in school, kids would call you names. And and so it was there was also that to get used to um, at the same time. And your brothers, how old were they when you came, the, the ones who had been born in the United States? They were both under 10. Um, so I, I, Kelly must have been around seven, and then Carl was about four. And so they were pretty young. As you've grown, uh, it, it sounds like that would be an interesting experience to have uh, siblings who you know are your peers and your family, but who don't share with you this really foundational experience of immigrating to this country and of being in Haiti without your parents. Was it a challenge for for you to bridge that divide at all? It wasn't so much for me. For my brother, it was even less challenging because immediately he was so happy to suddenly, you know, have these younger brothers and they were just so happy to have an older brother (laughs) eventually. But my, in the family, when you're, at, at least in my family, an older girl child, you're like a secondary parent. So there was a lot of responsibilities that came with that. So I had to watch my brothers. I had to cook for them. I, you know, I had to, you know, I was like a stand-in for my mother who, uh, who would often come home very late and very tired. So, but the adjustment wasn't that difficult only because I was so aware of how common it was. And even when I when I got to the United States, it was always at church, for example, people were always asking for prayer for their child that they were waiting to be reunited with. So it was to me, it was just almost ordinary. It didn't feel like such a trauma. Um, but I did at some point when I was um, a teenager, and I was watching these after-school specials. And I think one of them was sort of about adoption or separation. And I remember just having a really sort of heated conversation with my mom, like about, why did you leave me? You abandoned me. And she sat me down and she said, well, I'm going to tell you this. Every time I was eating, I wondered if you were eating. When I lay down to sleep at night, I wondered how you were sleeping. And she just it kind of went down the list. And it just made me so much better understand not just the side of it from from a, being a child, but also from, from the parent's side. And I had not given that too much thought in terms of what a heart-wrenching thing it is for the parent to leave their children behind for that time and how much of a race they are to be reunited with, with that child. So once, you know, she had that talk with me, I, I understood even better. And I have to, and once I became a parent, I certainly understood much better what a great sacrifice that was to agree or decide to be separated from your child 
hoping that will lead to a better future for them. Having no guarantees because you're going someplace you don't know anything about, you don't speak the language, you don't, you know, you don't have a job set up, but you're going and you're leaving your child behind and on pure faith that something better lies ahead. A lot of your work, uh, fiction, nonfiction, memoir, has dealt with different aspects of of that experience, of your experience, and of also just sort of more archetypally, I suppose, the experience of the diaspora. When did you start to feel like this was something you wanted to explore through writing and through storytelling? And what did you hope to accomplish as a storyteller when it came to trying to tell your own story? Well, when I was in high school, there was a newspaper in Manhattan uh, called New Youth Connections, and it was for high school students. It was distributed in the high schools, and it was all written by high school students. I started writing for them, and the first thing I wrote for them was about my first day in the United States, just like what it was like arriving. And I remember writing, I wrote about the escalator, <laughs> which was terrifying. It seemed like some weird mountain that was moving. And um, just about like that anticipation of just like walking into your new life. And I was, as I mentioned earlier, really shy. And then kids in my school read that. And the even people in my class who really didn't see me started talking to me. I thought it was really strange. They were asking me questions about this thing I had written. And then I wrote another thing about Christmas and what we do at Christmas. And and then I continued writing writing for them. After I graduated, you age out. I wanted to write more. I wanted to write about a girl who had come. But I was still a girl in, some, in a sense. I was 18 years old, and I was maybe six years removed from that experience. And I wanted to write beyond that. I wanted to write beyond the 18 years. So um, Breath Eyes Memory, my first novel, started from that essay of writing about my first day in the United States. And I, and just like asking myself, well, what if I try to write about what it was, this woman as an adult? And, and so I just started writing it. I didn't know I was writing a novel necessarily. The story kept getting longer and longer. And so I, I really, I have to say, just kind of stumbled into it. I wrote the shorter pieces I wrote, the ones that ended up in my second book, my story collection, Creek Crack, were more, I sort of had more an idea of what I was trying to do. I was trying to write these vignettes. I was trying to write short story, flash fiction. I had, I had the language then. But for my first book, it was just like I knew I wanted to write some version of my story, a kind of emotional autobiography, uh, if you will, but uh, and it was helping me. It was helping me process what I, you know, what I had lived, what I had been through, and and it was surprising, you know, to me, what was coming out. You know, things that I felt like were beyond my experience thus far. But it was fabulous to see the possibilities that emerged from just like you think you have an idea. You try to put it down, and then this thing comes out that is nothing like what you had expected, but is still, at its core, you know, expresses this desire that you have to tell this story. When you went to tell your own story, did you feel like there was a template? Did you feel like there were people who you could look to to guide you in that process? Absolutely. I was reading ferociously at the time when I just got here to the U.S., I read all the books by Haitian writers that they had at the library, Marie Vieux Chauvet, 
Gigi Dominique, Daniela Ferrier, and, and um, Jacques Romain and others. And then one day I was sort of looking what the next thing to read. I felt like, okay, I'm going to try to read in English now after I'd read these other books in French. And I saw a book in the youth section of the library with a little girl on the cover. It was Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I started reading it with a dictionary, and I just couldn't stop. I was just amazed by all the parallels with our lives, really. Um, the fact that she she had a mother who was living in another city, and she grew up with her grandmother, who was very similar in temperament to my aunt. You know, that sort of piousness, the church, and all these things that were in this book. And I just, it blew my mind that you could have so much in common with someone you've never met, who doesn't speak the same language you do, who's from a different country than you. Before that moment, I hadn't understood that quite that literature work like that. But I was just blown away by that book. And then when I started thinking about it, I was like, wow, she wrote that. And then I would see her on television. She was laughing. She has this big presence. And I thought, she's not punished for that. She's not a pariah for that, for writing that. And I do feel like if I, having read that book and, and having experience with her, some of the traumatic things that happened to her in the book too made me brave enough to write Breath Ice Memory, which also has um, an element of, you know, of trauma to it. So I felt, I, I, I felt like that right, reading that book made me braver. And then I started reading more immigrant writers like Maxine Hong Kingston, you know, The Woman Warrior, um, and then later Amy Tan, Julia Alvarez, and, and, and others that followed. But it all really began with uh, Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I feel like that book is sort of a godmother book to Breath Eyes Memory. I want to sort of jump into the present here. Um, your story, so much of your work, again, touching on themes uh, around migration and those experiences. And that's something that we're, we're seeing so much of in the news these days with our current president and the rhetoric around immigration, and especially around folks who are coming to America in search of a better life, maybe refugees from places that are having problems. How is this this rhetoric hitting you as someone who has gone through this experience? Well, it, it hit extraordinarily close to home, and in part because in addition to this reunion with my parents when, when when I was here and I was 12. My dad, who was a deacon in the church, used to take me on Sunday afternoon to visit this detention center at the Brooklyn Navy Yard in Brooklyn. Um, so all a lot throughout my teenage years, he would go, they would go pray with people at the Brooklyn Navy Yard detention center, and I would go with my father. And I would see people in the detention center who would give the people who came a piece of paper and they would say, call this person for me, let them know I survived. Because these are a lot of people who came from Haiti by boat and were then brought around the country to different detention centers. And the assistant attorney general at that point, that the person who in New York, who was in charge of this was Rudolph Giuliani. And he argued, you know, that these were economic refugees. They were not political refugees. And went to Haiti and met and sat down with the dictator then in Haiti, uh, 
Jean-Claude Duvalier, and then came back and said, oh, I've talked to this man. These people have nothing to fear from him. So it just, it, it's a very circular thing, you know, how immigration works, the scapegoating of immigrants. And it's been just very hard to see how far it's been taken in recent years. I live in Miami. There are so many immigrants uh, here, so many people who are nervous about their status. And it's just, it's continuously heartbreaking because there's so many families who are on edge. You know, there's so many people who um, might be afraid to go. I was talking to some doctors I know here recently who they, they said some of their patients are afraid to come because sometimes if they have a free clinic, there'll be, you know, an ice van outside just to intimidate people. So it's, it affects people's daily life and certainly in the communities here in Florida and I'm sure in, diff- in many different communities around the country. In your book, Brother, I'm Dying, you tell the story of your uncle coming across the border and tragically dying in custody of the federal government the Border Patrol. And I was struck reading it that this took place in the early 2000s. And in a way, this this issue of border detention um, is not a new issue by any means. And and that's one thing that I think is sort of lost in, in the conversation when we hear about the family detention centers and, and other types of detention at the borders. Is that something that has been interesting for you to see, you know, obviously having had this personal experience with these types of facilities, to see them suddenly kind of getting onto the radar nationally in a different way. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it is not it's not a new issue as I, I as I mentioned, you know, with the Brooklyn Navy Yard example. There's more visibility, thankfully, and people are talking more about it. And sometimes it's the moment, and sometimes it's it's an image that suddenly people, you know, these children children have been getting, you know, the ACLU had a report many years ago about children getting in detention, getting these um, drugs to calm them down, these psychotropic drugs, um, which people are finally talking about, and the abuses, you know, the uh, sexual abuse inside the detention centers, which people are finally talking about, but they have been happening indeed for quite a long time. I'm curious how you think of your role as a public figure today. You know, you obviously are, are quite prolific as a novelist, as a short story writer. Uh, you've written memoirs, nonfiction, <laughs> um, journalism. And it seems that, you know, lately you've also been something of a, an outspoken activist on, on some of these topics as well. How do you view your role in the sort of the public discourse and, and the kind of work that you think you need to be doing as a public figure with your platform and your uh, your interests and, and experiences? I, I think of myself as, as a witness mostly because I think those of us who know and are around activists, um, and I mean true activists all the time, the people who are on the front lines, who don't sleep, who are organizing, who, you know, just canvassing who are always on it are shy to call ourselves activists because we know some some activists but I think of myself as as a witness and a person who can whenever I can whenever I'm able to report on what I'm seeing and who can sort of report on what others are saying I see myself more as that because also I think in in many ways that this work is is somewhat selfish, right? As a the, this work of writing, because 
if you want to do it fully and carefully, it requires a lot of alone time, right? It requires a lot of time off the battlefield. And so I think the people we should call the activists or the people who are just at it. I mean, I have many friends who who this is their life. So I feel more comfortable saying that I'm a witness. And the way I witness is through, through this work of writing. The latest work that you've written is called The Art of Death. And it's a really interesting book kind of reflecting on uh, what it means to write about death and to sort of think about death and, and taking stock of the various ways in which other writers have done that. I'm curious to know what's been the effect of that project. You wrote that in, in 2017. What's been the sort of impact for you of, of thinking about death in that way and thinking about what it means to write about death that deeply and that sort of seriously? Well, I took on that that project after my mom died in 2014 of ovarian cancer. And after really a whole lifetime um, aside from, you know, the time that I was, you know, 12 to college age, we had spent our lives apart. You know, she um, came to, she was living in New York. I live in Florida. And she came to Miami for uh, Christmas and um, never got to go back to New York. uh, Because when she got here, I realized that she was thin and her belly was huge. And I had a a doctor friend looked her over, and, and she was diagnosed with an advanced stage four ovarian cancer. And so, for about, uh, you know, from the time she was diagnosed in January to October 2004, we were together. She was with me, and I kind of saw her on this journey, and we got to talk about everything, you know, really. With both my parents, I was blessed that we got to air out everything before they died. My dad also was diagnosed with a terminal illness that and he was um that lasted nine months and my mom was about um you know almost that. And so we really we got to spend this really intense time together and I just wanted after she was gone, I wanted to write about her. My mom had always told me not to write about her. Um and when I wrote about my dad and, and brother I'm dying uh, she said, leave me out of that book. <laughs> but so I wanted to write about her, but I also wanted to write about her in a very general way. I wanted to write about our last, her last months with me, but also what it is to write about death. Because I was suddenly in that, this position where I was just looking for other people's words to comfort me. And I felt like I really needed them before I moved on to writing a new project. And so, so I started... Um, that book to explore how other writers have written about death, but also as a way of of trying to process and write about these um, final weeks and months that I spent with my mother as she was dying. And in that book, I mean, you you sort of go through various types of writings about death, and, and you come across this kind of notion of living dyingly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about what that means and and whether you feel like you, through that process of writing that book, have, have kind of been able to embrace that form of living in, in a different way. Yeah, it's, um, it actually comes from um, Christopher Hitchens, when he was dying of esophageal cancer, wrote these uh, essays for Vanity Fair. 
and I was I was shocked. He was a big atheist, and I was shocked out of my mind the other day. I was in the bookstore, and I came across a book that said The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> Apparently, he had been having all these um, discussion with a friend about religion. Um, and actually, in one of those essays in Vanity Fair, he was like, if I ever confess to having faith, just kill me, <laughs> or something to that effect. <laughs> And um, so he came up with this notion of uh, living dyingly, living knowing that you're going to die, which other people, you know, other writers have said that it's how we should all live, right? Um, Like Annie Dillard in The Writing Life said, write as though you were writing for terminal patients because that is after all the case, is what she said. And so seeing how he tried to construct that, like, and Audre Lorde also wrote about that in her cancer journals, about living this kind of life or just being hyper-aware. Because I think we don't know when we're young that we're going to die, right? You just think the other guy's going to die, not me. But then having watched both my parents die, I certainly know that I'm not immortal. I, I, my prayer is often that it's not painful. <laughs> but it just makes you aware. Also, both my parents, because they were very unlike Christopher Hitchens, I guess, were people of extraordinary faith. So they, they, their dying were anchored in that. They, they sort of saw that they were, there was a possibility ahead. But both of them, at some point in their journey towards dying, told me, you know, you have to live the best life you ha- can now. Um, and, and to have some people say that to you with death in sight is extraordinary. It's just really powerful. They, they both were really emphatic about that, that Living dyingly, I guess, their interpretation would have been to just live as though it were your last day. I mean, you have doesn't mean you have to go crazy, but just don't leave anything unsaid or just, like, put things off. I think that's what really was my parents, um, both my parents, living dyingly lessons, if you will. Uh, and I was struck, you know, after reading that book, uh, The Art of Death, and then recently re- reading the story that you published in The New Yorker, Without Inspection, which takes place in the space between a man's falling off of a, a building or, or some kind of structure to his death down on the ground. And there's sort of this sense of a lot of the stuff that you actually talk about in, in The Art of Dying and you know about the vividness of experiencing life with the knowledge of death being imminent. Um, as you're looking forward, is that a theme that you're interested in continuing to explore? Oh, I so want to retire that. <laughs> the people in my life are sick of it. <laughs> They're like, stop. They're like, talk about joy or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's it just, you know, I think it's Margaret Atwood in the book I, I mentioned who says that every story ends in the same way, like every story ends in death, whether it's on the on the page of or not, I think Don DeLillo says that also. I think I quote him in one of the novels saying this. But it's not, no, it's not something really I want to linger on. I think it's was part of my grief, like really. Um, and and grief in my case was cumulative. I think, I think in grieving for my mother, I was also re-grieving for my father, for my uncle who died around the same time as my as my father and i and i felt really in my mother i think because it, it was such a profound loss i felt like i was grieving everybody who has ever died in my life before i just it just felt really like 
I needed to grieve it that deeply. And the writing was how I do it, you know. Um, and so I I really at some point want to just lay that down <laughs> and and go towards um, something more joyful. But still with the with the knowledge that every story does end that way, but it doesn't always have to be on the page. And and finally, as you do look ahead, are, are there projects that you're working on or ideas that you have germinating that, that you could share? I do. And I have, I've often felt sort of a low self-esteem about not having like a magnum opus as a writer, like a big, massive book to my name. <laughs> um, and so I would like to write one of those. I have a, I have a story that's germinating in that way. So that's really sort of what's um, percolating right now, like, like a big story that I've been wanting to tell for a long time that I might actually now try to engage. Edwige Dantica, this has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. That was my conversation with Edwige Dantica. Her latest book is called The Art of Death, Writing the Final Story. This podcast was produced by me, Jake Brownell, for 91.5 KRCC in association with Converge Lecture Series. Converge is a nonprofit program bringing some of the biggest names in contemporary poetry and literature to Colorado Springs. For more information and a schedule of upcoming lectures, head to convergelectureseries.org. For more episodes of the Converge Lecture Series podcast, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'm Jake Browning.